1: Well, this is synergy, and this is branding. It's all the things that you see today. And I would argue, um, it's only a little bit of an exaggeration, that you can draw a direct line from Babe Ruth to Kim Kardashian's tush.
2: Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are talking to one of the great sports authors of our time, Jane Levy. She wrote the definitive and endlessly creative biographies of Sandy Koufax and Mickey Mantle, and now she has published The Big Fella*, Babe Ruth and the World He Created. We will speak to her about the Babe. Also, I've got some choice words about the University of Maryland and a football culture that can only be described as toxic. I've got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards and Kaepernick Watch. But first, let's go to the legend herself, Jane Levy. My first question for you is, so you wrote, in my mind, and in what most people's minds are of the definitive biographies of Sandy Koufax and Mickey Mantle, and you could have chosen any subject, why Babe Ruth?
1: Well, after you've done Mantle and Koufax, where else do you go? Um, I mean, it's not going to be, with all due respect, Walker Bueller. Um, Though he may end up being a great pitcher, and perhaps someday somebody will write um, a fabulous biography of him. (laughs) But I think that in the current milieu, what happens is that people try to write life stories before those lives are lived. And, um, you know, you need a third act. You need to know what happens. And sometimes you need history to put them in perspective. And in my case, um, I was quite daunted by doing this. Um, I was really skeptical Mm -hmm. that I was going to be able to find anything new that would add anything to the voluminous oeuvre uh, that already existed and that was quite good. I mean, Bob Kramer's 1974 book on, uh, on Babe uh, was excellent, and each of the subsequent guys um, who came along uh, up to, including Lee Montville in 2006, um, added something to the picture. But when I read them all, which I did before agreeing to write the book, what stood out in stark... Uh, bas-relief was that there was no little George um, in the book and in any of the books. You ju- it was almost as if he emerged fully fledged in an in, Oriole's in uniform from St. Mary's Industrial School in Baltimore um, in, in March 2000, uh, sorry, <laughs> you know where I'm at, in March 1914. And it just struck me that you know, reporters have a, a barometer. Um, you can sort of tell when somebody's BSing you and you can sort of tell when something's missing and um, you re- it, it raises eyebrows. You know, why, why is there no childhood? And, um, and so I had the benefit that they didn't have of recently uh, opened archives of both newspapers that um, no longer exist, and state archives of family documents that they couldn't have searched you know, if they had spent a, a millennium doing it. So I was able to fill in the portion of his life that had been left out, and it is, of course, the portion of the life that was formative and that explains who he became and why he became the man we call the big fella.
2: Can you go into that a little deeper? What is it about his early childhood that you see as so formative to the person he became, to his to his appetites, to his needs, and how that fits so seamlessly into the culture of celebrity, which he inhabited?
1: Um, yeah, exactly. Well, there were two conflicting myths that survived him. One was that he was an orphan. And the only reason people thought he was an orphan was because they thought St. Mary's was an orphanage. And while it was a a place that accepted some orphans and what were called wayward boys and incorrigibles, a legal term for uh, the kids who were sent by the courts um, because they were in trouble with the law, um, you you know, people made an erroneous assumption about him. He must be an orphan. And he was often at pains to say, no, I had parents, but he never went any further than that. Um, and the other myth about him was that he was an incorrigible, sent by the courts um, uh, into what was essentially an, a kind of incarceration. Not that the kids didn't break out; they did, um, by his poor, hardworking German immigrant parents, who you know were unable to run their bars and uh, deal with this unruly. A miscreant seven-year-old. And it turns out that neither of those things are true. Um, the reason he was sent to St. Mary's is that he came from a highly dysfunctional, to use the 21st century term, family that ultimately disintegrated. George Herman Ruth, Sr. Um, divorced Katie Ruth in May 1906 uh, after finding her in a compromising position with his bartender and um, he filed uh, for divorce almost immediately he had them arrested Um, uh, Katie Ruth never returned to the family home except to come get her clothes which I might add he test George senior testified he had just spent $45 on a new wardrobe because she had given birth to their last child in um, August of uh, 1905 So what that tells you is two things. Um, Here he is seven years old, seven, right? And he has witnessed by that point, the death of three siblings, a fourth, the little boy, William, who was born in August 1905 will die in August 1906 in in a sanitarium uh, outside Baltimore. Um, Two of those four children died of starvation, or what was called at the time, marasmus. So here's a little boy who has seen death, um, and there are only two children left um, in this family that either had eight, which is what his sister Mamie uh, said, and Mamie was the only other uh, child of that marriage who survived into adulthood. But I could only find documentation for six children. But of those six, four died. And they still sent him away. So what does that tell you if you're a seven-year-old boy? They've only got two of us left, and they still don't want me. And his father, in fact, never came to visit him. And the myth about the incorrigibility of the babe actually dates back to the first um, written, ghost-written, I should say, autobiography uh, Penned by Westbrook Pegler for a newspaper syndicate in August 1920, um, or perhaps it was 21, I have to go check that, um, that was disseminated throughout the country and became the basis for every subsequent biography. It, it didn't occur to Westbrook Pegler to admit that he made the entire thing up and that he had never spoken to Babe Ruth until 25 years later, by which point the myth had become fact.
2: So is part of the argument of the book that he had this need for acceptance and love and attention because of this childhood, and that just crossed perfectly with the growth of the sports page of the 1920s and the creation of these heroes? So you had him wanting the sports page and the sports page wanting him in equal, uh, in equal uh, portions, or is that, is that too facile an analysis?
1: Well, it's, it, it, there is certainly truth in that. Um, I think if you look at pictures of his eyes, even if the, in the pictures where what people are commenting on is his crooked, you know, it, it, cock-eyed grin, um, his eyes are sad you know it, there was there was deep sadness in that guy but what i would put it slightly different dave um at st mary's which was perennially overcrowded and perennially underfunded he slept in dorm rooms that were built to accommodate 90 boys and often had as many as 130 with other ones sleeping out in the halls and they slept in wrought iron cots that were are lined in rows like pinstripes with uh, a bent wood chair between between them and just enough room on um, between them to get down on your hands and knees and say your prayers. Um, and in the pictures that were put in the annual um, St. Mary's uh, printed uh, guides that were sent out to the state and the city for funding, basically, there's not a single personal object by any of those beds. So it's both uniform and it's a public way to live. These boys lived together. They slept head to toe together. They bathed together. They changed their clothes together. They played baseball together. What Babe Ruth knew and what was normal for him was being public what he couldn't be was alone and so yes if you flash forward to his public self um, his parents had left him uh, in, in the guardianship of the Averian brothers um, because you had to sign over uh, your kid in order to have him be there um, they left him alone to create a self and a life and he did that which was in a remarkable accomplishment and then he becomes Babe Ruth the ball player and with the help of his agent the first sports agent Christy Walsh who is really the model for Jerry Maguire they created a persona the big fella and that big fella has a lot of you know of, of George Herman Ruth junior in it but it also served a purpose of putting him in those crowds of boys where he was most comfortable. He didn't feel claustrophobic, surrounded by those masses of kids who piled out of rickety stadiums. There's a picture, which I'm sure you've noticed on the end papers of the book, that was, there's like 5,000 boys trying to cram into the frame of a single photograph that was taken in August 1925 In Syracuse, New York, uh, during a right after a Yankee um, exhibition game, because I'm sure you know that uh, the Yankees played in-season exhibition games um, in those years, and they're draped over him. Some of them are like wrapped around his neck like a fur boa, and they're all they can't get close enough to him. If you look at, and he's not he's not uncomfortable. There's no hint of claustrophobia. He's just completely comfortable. Maybe the happiest you ever see him is in that picture. And that told me everything I needed to know about the public babe and the relationship between little George, which was his name in the family that abandoned him, and the big fella. Mm.
2: So this book... As so many of your, as as the Kofax book did and the Mantle book did, it has this very um, untraditional structure, uh, where you focus on this three week cross country barnstorming tour after the World Series in nineteen twenty seven, um, and and flash back and flash forward to this tour. Um, I, I wanted to get off the Babe and talk a little bit about the writing process real quick because I wanted to know how you came to that as the most effective way to speak about Babe Ruth, his childhood and celebrity.
1: So I wanted to create the feeling of, or I wanted to allow the reader to feel what it was like to be Babe Ruth at the absolute apex of his powers and fame, and what it was like to be with Babe Ruth at that at that moment in time. And this tour, this barnstorming tour that Christy Walsh called the Symphony of SWAT actually uh, began uh, two days after the Yankees sweep the Pittsburgh Pirates in the World Series, and Babe Ruth hits the only two home runs um, in the series, and just days, a week or so after he's hit the 60th home run you know, running around the bases, crowing, 60, count them, 60, let's see some other son of a bitch do that. So he's, you know, he will continue to produce um, at at an incredible rate for several more years, but he will never be more famous and it will never be a moment again where he is so synonymous with American clout. And since he was so accessible and since he was so available to people, particularly on that road trip, that, that kind of valedictory tour of America um, that wound its way from Providence through Asbury Park and, and Kansas City and Omaha to Denver and out, and out down the California coast, um, it was an opportunity to show him in his glory with those people and to show those people responding to him.
2: Yeah, I mean, that, that tour, it's just the descriptions of it are, are really remarkable. Like the people they met, the people that they undoubtedly influenced and who influenced them. And I, I, you talk in, the, in that tour about his interactions with people like the, the Japanese legend Kenichi Zenimura, um, players in the Negro Leagues. If you could, I, I, th- I found the, the interjection of them so interesting in the book. Can you speak a little bit about uh, the ramifications of those collisions between these different people and these cultures, and the effect that it had on either the broader culture, the subcultures, or the Babe himself.
1: Sure. Um, so you know, he was not the only white baseball player to barnstorm against Negro Leaguers in the off season, but he was, but he was Babe Ruth. And what that meant was that those games attracted enormous attention, both in the African-American press and to some extent in the white press. And um, it also meant that he guaranteed those guys a good payday, which was nothing to sneeze at. And uh, he'd been doing that since uh, the teens, in fact. Um, and this is at a time where the commissioner of baseball, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, is reinforcing, upholding the unwritten uh, code of segregation in Major League Baseball, uh, if the color line. Um, and, in fact, on the day, October 15th, the day that Ruth goes to Kansas City, um, Kennesaw Mountain Landis issued a ruling saying, that any white minor leaguers who participated in a Southern California integrated winter league would be banished from organized baseball forever. And those guys have been playing in that league forever, right? That same day in Kansas City, and this is one of the more touching things that I saw, I think, in in Babe Ruth. Um, He he gets a call uh, between careening between the orphanages and hospitals uh, in the Kansas City area, couldn't he please take the time to stop at the Negro uh, Hospital for Children, Wheatley, Provident? And so he skips the banquet, the luncheon banquet, and he dashes over there, and a very famous picture is taken of him cradling an African-American child who's obviously quite ill um, against his massive chest and the baby's splayed fingers are, you know, up against his massive brown suit jacket, and he's got the baby's bottom in one of his massive paws, and he's turned to the camera. Uh, was the, the photographer was George Coffin, the uh, photo editor of the Kansas City Journal-Post, with his big, big, huge grin. Now, he had to have known that that picture carried a lot of weight and that it would in the African-American community. And that's significant because, as I'm sure you know, rumors that he was passing had followed him um, since his time at St. Mary's, where he was um, labeled with an racial epithet that was based purely on physical stereotype Everybody said, oh, my gosh, he's got a wide nose and he's got big lips and he's darkly complected. He must be passing. Mrs. Ruth must have crossed over to the other side. And that um, that kind of pure hate-mongering and rumor-mongering followed him uh, throughout Major League Baseball, where he was heckled from dugouts by the likes of... Um, uh ty cobb and during the 32 world series um a guy bush from mississippi so for him to take that picture um was a form of bravery um his the significance of the four nisei players participating in the game in uh fresno uh that you referred to was huge for that community. It was a form of acceptance to be on the same baseball field and as Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig to interact with Babe Ruth at first base and, you know, even if it was just your usual baseball jocular, hey, watch it, son, you know, if you you do that to me again, I'm going to use you as a bat, which is what Babe Ruth said to uh, Kenichi when he slid back in, Safely through through Ruth's legs, um, you know it had huge ramifications. And and Zenimura, who was a great player, uh, albeit a, a short one, um, and who organized baseball leagues and organized tours of Nisei players to Japan, tried very hard to um, arrange a tour uh, of Babe Ruth to Japan immediately after that uh, that season. Um, But he couldn't raise enough money. And it didn't happen until then, uh, 1934, uh, after Babe's last season with the Yankees.
2: You you mentioned the bravery of Babe Ruth in these pictures, and these contexts. Do do we have any notion of what Babe Ruth's formal politics were?
1: I I actually um, uh, was, um, you know, trying to... I'm I'm, I'm a contest to see if you can create a viral tweet. So I (laughs) last night, I I wrote um, uh, Babe Ruth didn't vote after supporting the uh, losing candidacy of Democrat Al Smith in 1928 because his wife, Claire, thought it was bad for his image. Um, And then I wrote, so everybody else, Please vote. Please support the big (laughs) fella. He then, um, the only other time uh, that you know anything about his voting was in 44. Um when at Christy Walsh's behest and Christy Walsh was an interesting character, he was uh he, he was the one who organized a whole bunch of athletes for Al Smith because Al Smith was Catholic and Christy Walsh was um Catholic and he, he got athletes for Smith together. In forty four he pleaded with Babe to um appear in in political um at, in radio broadcasts uh, uh, against FDR who Walsh thought was some kind of radical and that the, you know, fourth term would be a n- nightmare for the American public. So Babe Ruth actually went on a radio par- uh, broadcast with Christie Walsh's nephew who told me that he was alive and told me the story about how Babe was so drunk that he lost his place <laughs> in the script, but he was also on the stage in New York, um, with Dewey on election night. Wow,
2: that's that that's a story unto itself. I mean that 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 you have these living links to Babe Ruth, who I think.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, as as I'm sure you know, as a reporter, when you've got a story about someone who's as been as dead as long as Babe Ruth has, you know, the number of people you're going to be able to find who actually had any personal, uh, experience and knowledge of him is, is small and it's going to get smaller as time goes along. And of, uh, the 20 or so people I was able to find, um, who'd actually had, uh, time with him, at least five of them have died since, since, uh, wow. I started the reporting. How do you think
2: Babe Ruth would exist in today's 24 hour celebrity culture? Do you think it would be, um, the sort of thing where his foibles that we've come to know become even larger than life and even more appreciated? Would I mean, what, what, what do you th- would he be more secretive of a Michael Jordan style? I mean, would he, would he be embracing this kind of 24-hour social media existence? Who would Babe Ruth be in 2018?
1: Well, I actually think, um, you know, he'd now have Scott Boris as his agent. And there would be a whole phalanx of people um, hired to tell him how to deal with the media. Um, he'd have a body man or persons who would follow him around and make sure he didn't get into the kind of trouble that um, in, the, in, in his era, reporters simply just didn't write about um, They'd be taking him into VIP lounges at bars rather than, you know, <laughs> the speakeasy that he frequented with everybody, uh, with everybody else in the, in the 20s. Um, and so he'd have as much protection um, from his own worst instincts um, as, as anybody could afford. Um, and in terms of the, the adulation, He'd love it.
2: That's fantastic. Yeah, because it would be, it would be. He'd be, he'd always be on stage, basically. Yes. So he'd never really have to be alone.
1: Right. And and one of his relatives, Claire Claire Ruth, um, his second wife, told um, uh, one of his relatives who told me he couldn't be alone. He he hated being alone. And one of the true, you know, sadnesses of the last 13 years of his life after he quits uh, the Braves with that horribly failed experiment. Um, and he signs there after the Yankees dump him and judge Emil Fuchs owner of the Braves makes all these empty promises that he's going to be the next manager and vice president. And it's an empty title and all that stuff, um, you know, and baseball finds no place for him, none. And You know, he does clinics and he he signs baseballs and he rides in a World's Fair uh, parade organized by Christy Walsh and he referees uh, wrestling matches, but organized baseball has no place for him. And that absence, that abandonment by the game and the institution had to have resonated in a most acutely cruel way. Um with the little George who was still there inside this guy who had been abandoned by his family as a little boy.
2: Wow. Okay. And I you've been so generous with your time. Um I'm, like, I'm I, getting, I, went,
1: I I'm i I'm I have I have time to kill today, so
2: uh,
1: keep at it if
2: you want to. I, I you've been so generous with your time. Um at one point, you list all of Babe Ruth's uh, nicknames, and I got—I I thought I knew them all, and you uncorked about uh, about 70% of them I'd never heard before, and I just have to ask you, was he really referred to as the diamond-studded ball buster?
1: Yes, and that was Damon Runyon who created that one. Oh, my gosh. And I found another one just yesterday. I wrote a piece for uh, John Thorne's um, Our Game blog about his... 1916 pitching performance, 14 innings in Game Two. Um, you know what it took the Red Sox nine pitchers to do in seven hours. Mm-hmm. You know <laughs> Babe Ruth pitched 14 innings in in two hours and 32 um, minutes and gave up one run, uh, an inside the park home run to High Myers of the Brooklyn Robins. Um, and then shut them out for the rest of um, you know another, another 13.1 innings, which was the beginning of the scoreless streak that continued in the 1918 World Series, uh, a record that would last till Riley Ford broke it in 1961. But um, you know this this guy um, and it was called in the coverage of that game by Grantland Rice, the famous Grantland Rice, the Baltimore Blizzard. <laughs> so what, next edition, I'm adding the Baltimore Blizzard. There's, there's one other thing, you know, aspect of this, Dave, that, that um, means a lot to me. And I, um, I actually, you know, it's, it's uh, I, don't, I, I know it's not the sexiest part of this, but his creation of modern celebrity with the aid of his, of of Christy Walsh at the precise moment in time in American history when fame is being reinvented by technology that is amplifying um, the image of a person and the voice of a person and the words of a person you know is is so important there's a there's a um picture in the book of him holding a carrier pigeon at the Polo Grounds in September 1921 because that was the only way they could send updates inning by inning to fans on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Now, uh, the first game, first uh, broadcast of a baseball game, Major League Baseball game, had taken place a month before on KDKA in, in, in Pittsburgh, but it wouldn't become um, regular Uh, For a number of years, but flash forward six years in 1927, the season opens with Babe Ruth granting a radio pregame interview from a from a field box at Yankee Stadium with Graham McNamee. Right. And the season ends with the World Series being broadcast coast to coast, not on two national radio networks, NBC and CBS. So the world was turning inside out, and every trick of the trade that is still employed today, um, Christy Walsh was trying. And one of my favorites is when he, when Babe Ruth meets a chicken that's, that that becomes named after him because she, Lady, she's originally Lady Norfolk, who becomes Lady uh, Amco, who becomes the Babe Ruth of layers, has is that laying as chicken in the United States, 173 straight days. She's gone to her roost and produced an egg. So while Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig are in Omaha, they go over to the Amco, American Milling Company uh, plant where uh, all the competitors are being, <laughs> are being uh, held, and he meets the chicken named for him. And there are newsreel cameras there. Well, this is synergy. And this is branding. It's all the things that you see today. And I would argue, um, it's only a little bit of an exaggeration, that you can draw a direct line from Babe Ruth to Kim Kardashian's tush.
2: (laughs) All right, so maybe you could give it – I have to ask you. I I mean I I can't imagine what it takes – out of a writer to write something as incredibly detailed and ornate as what you've accomplished with the big fella. But do you have a next project lined up? Do you, who's going to be the next player that you excavate to such a degree?
1: I don't think there is anybody after Babe Ruth. Not they, That player may exist in Major League Baseball now, but it's going to take a long time, a lot longer than... Um, uh you know one season of of pitching and hitting uh you know um to know that that's who that that's what that person is um i don't think there's anybody in major league baseball right now i'd want to spend a year with liter- in a literary sense um much less eight with so i think i'm going to go to bali <sighs> and then i'll think about it <laughs>
2: That's something I think that Babe Ruth would uh, very much appreciate and endorse. Um, uh,
1: in fact, he went, he went on his tour on his way back. He I think he went to Polynesia, and there are these pictures of him po- uh, posing bare-chested with uh, surfers and all sorts of characters with lays draped around his neck. It, they're they're great they're great photos.
2: Wow, that's fantastic. And I ask this of everybody I interview for the show. I mean, particularly people who take on projects like this. Uh, what kind of music did you listen to when writing, or if at all, or to wind down after writing? What what was it that got you through as you were doing this, from a musical perspective?
1: Baseball games. Baseball games. Really? Baseball on, baseball on the radio.
2: Wow. Is, it, is, that, is that part of your normal routine, or is it that it transported you to time and place?
1: I think, um, and I'm just about to write this, so I'm sort of telling you off the top of my head... What I'm about to write. Um, I think baseball is the most writerly sport for exactly the reason that our impatient um, uh, generation is, you know, it gets tired of it. It's the pauses and the, you know, um, nuances that allow a writer to take a minute to think of a sentence. Uh, to imagine, particularly if you're living, if, it, if you're listening, excuse me, on radio, uh, what is actually transpired on the field, and so listening to the call of the game um, actually helps me with the rhythm of writing about the game.
2: Uh J- Jane Levy, thank you so much for your time. Really do appreciate it and really do appreciate the book, The Big Fella. Um I-, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed it, how much I learned from reading it. Uh the gap between what I thought I knew about this history. I mean and I'm not just talking about the history of babe Ruth, I'm talking about like the history of Baltimore at the turn of the twentieth century and what I actually read was just fantastic. So thank you so much for the work you put in.
1: Dave, it was it's always a pleasure. You ask the best questions.
2: Oh, it's very kind, and I look forward to seeing you on, and I'll say this on the podcast for my DC listeners, uh, on November 4th at 3 p.m. over at Politics and Pros Bookstores, where you'll be speaking about the big fella.
0: Fastball swung on, lit the deep center field. Bernie Williams goes back, and
2: This is what you got to read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about the football culture at the University of Maryland. Okay, look, the definition of toxic in Merriam-Webster's dictionary reads as follows. Containing or being poisonous material, especially when capable of causing death or serious debilitation. And then there's the third entry where toxic is described as extremely harsh, malicious, or harmful. These phrases match to every last tragic word. The description affixed over the summer to the culture of violent hazing that's pervaded at the University of Maryland under now suspended football coach DJ Durkin. Reporter Heather Dinich at ESPN uncovered in August that, quote, several current University of Maryland football players and people close to the Terrapins program describe a toxic coaching culture under head coach DJ Durkin before offensive lineman Jordan McNair's death in June after a football workout and stroke. McNair died of, quote-unquote, exertional heat stroke and dehydration during an off-season workout in the summer heat. Yet now, a special commission at the school has released a 198-page report received by the Washington Post that tries to whitewash the horror of McNair's death, as well as the atmosphere of bullying and intimidation that has surrounded Durkin's program. They write, The commission found that the Maryland football team did not have a toxic culture, but it did have a culture where problems festered because too many players feared speaking out. They then go on to describe and confirm newspaper reports of the bullying of former strength coach Rick Court, whom Durkin had described previously as his most important hire. Court was the person who paid no attention to Jordan McNair exhibiting signs of fatal heat stroke, instead goading players to quote, drag his ass around the field. Court has also been accused of pressing a weight machine on a player's neck, pushing over a player who had worked out to the point of vomiting, and so much more. Court left the program after McNair's death not with a pending indictment for negligence, but instead with a $315,000 salary payout. Yet despite all of this, the commission's report to the Board of Regents reads as follows. By definition, Maryland's football culture was not toxic. In light of our conclusion that Maryland's football culture was not toxic, we do not find that the culture caused the tragic death of George McNair, end quote. This is a case of don't spit in my face and tell me it's raining. Yes, any program where bullying leads to the death of a so-called student-athlete is by definition toxic. The pointed need in this report to not brand it as such speaks to a desire to not only try and save Durkin's job, but failing that to save a football program in which the school has invested tens of millions of dollars. Durkin and his multi-million dollar salary may indeed still become disposable by necessity following the outrage that has engulfed the campus after McNair's death. But what cannot be sacrificed is the school's high-profile move from the ACC to the Big Ten Conference, all for the sake of football dollars or the school's massive construction projects aimed at having a state-of-the-art indoor practice facility, or the fundraising operations aimed at boosters and corporate sponsors to get the program off the ground. An enormous amount of money is at risk. This isn't Alabama or Ohio State, a place where the football program is too big to fail, and the death of a player or a scandal involving a coach would register as just a bump on the tracks, while the train keeps on running. This is a school where big-time football is in its infancy and fraught with debate on a campus where many remain uncomfortable over this transfer of wealth and energy towards big football over other university priorities. A tragedy like the death of Jordan McNair has the potential to scuttle the entire operation, to kill the golden goose before it can lay any eggs. As Sally Jenkins of the Washington Post wrote so aptly, let's say a fraternity boy died on the University of Maryland campus after being hazed. The University of Maryland System Board of Regents wouldn't need four months to reports and a seven-hour secret meeting to figure out the right response. The frat would be expelled from campus, and perpetrators of abuse would face criminal charges. But because Jordan McNair died at the hands of a football program backed by high-dollar donors, everyone seems confused about what needs to happen. This commission report is an attempt to perfume something rancid, something best described as toxic waste. Durkin needs to go, as to those who oversaw this toxicity, namely President Wallace D. Lowe and Athletic Director Damon Evans. There needs instead to be a commission to report on how a school dedicated to the educational betterment of its students could allow big football to come in, leave Jordan McNair dead in its wake, and then spur those in power to reveal the worst sides of themselves. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports Podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubblegum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it, but we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edge pod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edge pod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a
0: huge
2: difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edge pod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, Back to the Edge of Sports Podcast. And now we hand out our awards. Time for the part of the show where we hand out the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award this week. Stand up! uh, It's a bit of a slow week on the political front, but I'm going to give it to Darius Miles, former NBA player who wrote a terrific piece or co-wrote. However, the writing actually took place, I do not know. But whatever it was, the Players' Tribune published a terrific, honest piece about what it was like for Darius Miles to go straight from high school into the NBA. And it's really beautiful. And it talks about some of the challenges that are faced when poverty meets instant riches and the conflicts therein. People should definitely check it out. So big shout out to the Just Stand Up Award for Darius Miles for being vulnerable. It's a difficult thing to be in this society. Well done, Darius Miles. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award SIT
0: your ASS DOWN
2: Goes to legendary Syracuse coach Jim Beheim. So legendary Just days after his top recruit Darius Baisley Turned down the opportunity to play for Beheim at Syracuse And instead announced that he was going to have A $1 million shoe internship with New Balance Beheim had choice words of his own For Lakers star LeBron James Who shares the same agent as Baisley This is what Beheim said. He said, LeBron did a nice job helping his client. It is LeBron's client, right? And it's because James' agent, Rich Paul, helped orchestrate this one-of-a-kind deal for Baisley. Now, this is a case of Rich Paul and LeBron James um, attempting to actually remake the college basketball system. To turn it into something where players can actually make money before having to play in the NBA for that one-and-done gap year that is so bizarrely imposed by the NBA on 18-year-olds. And LeBron's response to Jim Beheim was, two hours later he just said, Oh, they big mad! In all exclamation points. Uh, Oh, they big mad. And Jim Beheim, as the New York Post put it, cowered in response, saying, Not me, I'm not mad, I'm happy for him. Uh, because I think Jim Beheim knows that you're not going to recruit the next generation of players if you're also putting down uh, LeBron James. And I just found this to be a very interesting collision between the old way, Jim Bayheim and the new way, LeBron James. Each side attempting to, con- to profit off of young players but with LeBron trying to do it in a way that remakes the system and actually gets the players some of the cheddar they deserve, and Jim Beheim trying to keep this archaic system in place that has served him so well over the course of half a century. So just sit your ass down, Jim Beheim. You sound archaic. Your time is done. Time to let this happen in a new kind of way. You can't have a system where the coaches make millions and that money is just sucked out of the pockets of players. Jim Beheim, again, sit your ass down. Now it's time for the part of the show we call Kaepernick Watch, about the latest connections or connectivity between popular culture and what's happening with Colin Kaepernick. This week, we are giving the award to a 12-year-old Ikaluit student. I hope I'm pronouncing it that right. It's the name of an indigenous tribe, Ikaluit student named Miles Brewster, who sat during the Canadian National Anthem to make a statement about residential school curriculum. He said, I guess I just wanted to make a statement for changes in school, like more education about the past, like what happened to the First Nations and in Inuit. They had to go to residential schools. So Miles Brewster, uh, actually using that anthem space to protest against racism. Well done, sir. I want to give you a Just Stand Up award as well and also highlight what you did here on Kaepernick Watch. Nicely done, Miles Brewster. Young people, bravery. Please, we need as much of it as possible. Well, that's all we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to Jane Levy. Just an amazing interview and a remarkable book, The Big Fella. Thank you so much to my producer. Thank you so much to The Nation Magazine for uh, its production of this podcast. For everybody out there listening, please go to iTunes Stitcher, your podcast app of choice, and uh, give us some ratings, give us uh, some comments. All of that makes a huge difference for the show. Uh, For everybody out there listening, uh, we are out of here. Please stay frosty. Peace.